Nobody wants to end up in family court, but if you do, you want an honest, experienced family law attorney by your side to help minimize the stress, mental anguish, and legal costs that divorce and custody matters bring. Welcome to In Your Best Interest. Texas divorce attorney and entrepreneur Justin Sizemore of the Sizemore Law Firm, entrepreneur Andrea Jones, freelance writer Mary Maloney and guests share insight on what to expect and how to handle family law matters, the changing landscape of family law, and living the entrepreneur's life. Now, on to the show. The state of Texas is a community property state, which means any assets included in the marital estate are subject to just and right division upon divorce. Defining which assets qualify as community versus separate property and determining the proper valuation of those assets can get complicated. In today's edition of In Your Best Interest, we'll discuss how the valuation process works and what factors can affect property division during divorce. Thanks for joining us for this episode of In Your Best Interest. I'm Mary Maloney, and today, attorney Justin Sizemore, entrepreneur Andrea Jones, and I will share insight on how shared assets are handled during divorce in Texas. So, Justin, let's start off talking about the fact that Texas is a community property state. Um, Can you kind of explain what that means and then talk a little bit about the difference between community and separate property? Yeah, so community property is basically broken down into an asset classification whereby the day you get married, any property that you acquire during the marriage, unless it's by gift, devise, or descent, is considered community property. So it's divisible uh, by a court. And so separate property would be anything outside of that. And the court confirms separate property and they award community property. Can you go a little deeper into that? Maybe touch on what separate property would actually be because I know we've talked about inheritance before, maybe a, a, a business business interest that you brought into the marriage and things like that that you had before. Sure. So there's there's a big confusion out there with respect to when a party has been married for 10 or 15 years. And let's say, for example, they in, inherited some property or they were gifted some property or a spouse transfers property to their other spouse. And they put them on a deed, right? Uh, so these are simple examples. But what happens with the confusion is, generally speaking, there's a lot of commingling that happens in an estate when you've been married for multiple years. So with respect to community property, what you actually have to do uh, the burden of proof is on the party trying to claim it as separate. So the the distinguishing factor there is getting tracing schedules to show that the property is in and of itself separate, i.e. you had it before the marriage or you inherited it, you were gifted it, you know, or it, it passed down from some third party. So the the kicker there is really being able to get the documentation from way back when you know, if it's seven, eight, 10 years to prove that that's actually separate property to really draw that line. And the reason I go through the the burden of proof there is because it directly relates to the definition of community and separate property. It's that line drawn in the sand that shows that that property is community and or separate. Uh, it's not just date of marriage. It's also, you know, you have enhanced value of the property. You have income that spins off and we're we're in Texas, so we deal with oil and gas all the time. So you have different factors that come in from oil and gas, for example. You have shut-in royalties, you have delay rentals, um, you have royalty interests, you have um, you know various other things that happen in oil and gas that create income 
and are classified as income. So that that income again um, can be considered community property, even though it's coming from a separate property uh, inheritance and or an oil and gas deal that you did before the marriage. So th- I always use the analogy of you know think of your house, right? The front door is the date of the marriage. The back door is the date of divorce. Anything that you accumulate in that house um, during the marriage, unless it's given to you or it's devised to you or it's dissented to you, meaning it's it's willed to you, um, anything that accumulates in that house is community property and subject to not only valuation, but also division. So let's move on to um, the fact that once you are going through divorce, it's, it's very important to get all of those different assets collected, um, identified, and create an inventory of those. Can you kind of just explain in general what's involved with the process of pre- preparing an inventory of your marital estate? One of the things that I've really touched on a few consults as of recent, I get people that call and they generally think they want a, a prenup conversation. Um, but it actually evolves into a conversation about really defining what you have. And I, I like to use the analogy of estate planning, um, mainly because a, you know, most people, especially, you know, we see a lot of people at 40 to 50 to, you know, early sixties, uh, people in their late twenties that get married, they have no estate plan whatsoever. And they've got kids, uh, and whatnot. So the reason why this parallels is because, when you are dealing with those defining factors, like you talked about the inventory and getting the information together, when you're dealing with those defining factors, one of the things that you want to do before you get married is, and this is not to to be contemplating divorce. This is truly to just purely understand what you have. And most importantly, have the documentation ready, right? So, so you don't run into these issues. So one of the things I tell people to do all the time, if they call before for a consult, uh, before they get married is to do a running inventory of what they have in the estate and also get the documentation together to back that up. So if you have $100,000 in the bank and it's with Chase, uh, get that bank statement because what's going to happen if if something happens in the future is if you're trying to trace out what you brought into the marriage and it's an earlier marriage, you can generally go back and get that documentation. But if it's a 10, 15, 20 year marriage, even with the online platforms that we have, a lot of these banks aren't saving this information. So you call, you know, bank A or investment company B and they just don't have the origination document. So that's the one that traces the or draws that line in the sand to trace that actual valuation. So with respect to the inventories, um, you know, it's really important if you can to do that before the marriage. If you can't, um, it's really important to be thinking about um, specifically where your stuff is and what happens in the event that something happens to you. And that's important for both spouses, even if it's something as minute as a little vehicle uh, or, you know, you, you don't know um, the title of, of what a house is in. Um, there's not specifics as to that. And then there's a lot of refinancing that happens um, and commingling of accounts where you, you know, you transfer retirement A to retirement B account, or you transfer bank account A to bank to bank B. And every time you do that, you're breaking that chain, right? And so from a tracing side, you trace in to the account to show what was in the account. You trace that that account amount was there. And then obviously there's fluctuations in value. So if you're removing funds or you're commingling those funds, it's just really important to be thinking about the inventory concept because every time you're making that change, you need to be drawing that line and and defining what's there. 
And that really leads into the next question here that it, it really can get complicated when you're trying to determine the valuation of those different assets as you just referred to. Can you talk a little bit more about the, how, how the valuation process works? I mean, there's the tracking of it, the tracing of it. And then of course you bring in valuation experts as well. Sure. So the, the, the valuation is probably what I would consider the biggest craft of a divorce attorney. And you should always rely on experts, regardless of, you know, I always preach about having a business background. That is important to be able to identify and spot issues, but it does not substitute for the advice and the evidence that an expert can produce. So valuation can go all over the place. I, I've seen, you know, 15, $10 million differences in valuation. And, you know, you've got different ways to look at valuation. One of it is a, you know, basically a multiplier approach where you have the net EBITDA uh, and you do a multiplier approach of that. So that's earnings before interest, taxes, and depreciation and amortization. So when you're doing a EBITDA approach and you're doing a multiple, um, you're figuring out kind of what the net profit of the business is and figuring out, okay, well, how many customers do they have? How attached to the customers are they? What is the goodwill of the individual? Um, and, and then when you get all the, that information together, and again, you're, you're tracing, you're gathering the information, and then you're valuing. So it, you got to be very organized in this process, specifically when you're trying to defend against a big valuation, because, you know, keep in mind, judges, they're not all business people. Um, so they're relying on the information given by the experts. So if you come in very organized and you have a very clear explanation without all of these, I call it the space language, where they get off on these financial tangents and you put people to sleep. Uh, if you really organize yourself and you have a very clear cut one to two page explanation about what's going on with the valuation, one of the things that you're going to do there, specifically when you've got a small, closely held business, is you're backing the spouse out. Let's say, for example, I have, let's call it a snow cone stand for simplicity. Um, and everybody comes to my snow cone stand because they love me distributing the snow cones. Well, one of the things that you deal with is if you back that individual out, would people still come to the snow cone stand? And if the answer is yes, then Obviously, the goodwill side of the business is there, but the individual is not as important. So now we're, I mean, and, and again, I'm saying all these things. I know I'm, we're bouncing it all around, but it's important that you hear how much complexity is in just valuation in and of itself. Because what happens generally in a marriage, one party uh, is running and operating the business. The other party may be slightly involved in a bookkeeping aspect, but they're not really integrated into the business. And so when you get to a division of property, how, is, how do you do a just and right division when you have one side that's running the business, has all the customers, has all the contacts, and the other side doesn't really have much information? And so courts look at, in a community property state, what that value is. How do you offset that value uh, with respect to um, you know, a money judgment? If they get a money judgment, is that money judgment secured by tangible assets? Um, and those are, those are, that's kind of the balancing act. And, you know, we are in a situation a lot in a divorce cases where, um, you might, you might not capture a hundred percent of the value of the business, but you capture a lot of the secured interest in the assets on the other side of the balancing factors there. So you might give up some of that valuation, which again, can fluctuate massively depending on what the experts find and the, and the method they use. And then we look at the security of the, the party on the other side and say, okay, well, you know, this three or $4 million is going to be made, make this person whole. And yes, the business is worth 10, 
but we can guarantee that they have their hands on the three or four million. So we take the deal, right? And the, and and those are the risk factors that are individualized. And we we definitely walk through. But you could get this. You might the court might do this. We walk through the scenarios, but ultimately it becomes a financial decision and a business decision. So I, I think I've darted around a little bit there, but I hope that answered part of your question. Yeah, absolutely. So um, circling back kind of to the experts here, um, when you have different experts involved, um, well, first of all, I know we've talked in the past about how important it is to get your hands on the best experts possible first. So if you could talk a little bit about that and then how the the judge determines which expert is correct, I guess, basically. Sure. So again, the burden of proof, and I keep going back to the tracing side of that, the documentation side of that, the organization side of that, and also the valuation, and then the expert who puts forth the information together with the attorney that asks the questions. Okay. So that's how that, that's how the puzzle pieces fit together. And you can hear, and you should be thinking about all the moving parts to that. You know, clients think if they don't see you in a courtroom, that the whole case is all evolves around how many hours you actually spend in a courtroom. Well, one of the things that's really important is a realizing what your strengths and weaknesses are. And that's why when you're looking at the expert themselves, uh, you're looking at somebody that can really communicate effectively, right? So I've had some incredibly smart experts that can go on for days about how intelligent they are. And it literally puts the room to freaking sleep ASAP, myself included. And I can't get a clear answer out of them that basically explains something in a simplistic fashion to where, you know, it, everyone kind of goes, uh-huh. You know, when you see the judge kind of give you those eyes, like, what did they just say? And you're sitting there and you're asking this expert that you paid a bunch of money for, and you haven't really vetted them. And you're sitting there going, I don't really know what they said either. That's a terrible place and time to have that happen. Um, and keep in mind, experts are expensive. So in a lot of divorce cases, you don't have the luxury of a limitless finance or unlimited financial resources to be able to do depositions of the expert and all the things that you would do in a big civil case. And so sometimes you get this expert report, you call the expert and you say, okay, well, just kind of explain this to me. And they give you kind of a quick rundown. And so you feel like that expert is qualified to basically further explain that in a courtroom. Well, then you get somebody who's really prepared on the other side because their their expert has worked with them and has prepared the attorney as much as the client. And now you start asking these very finite, specific questions that are in reliable methods of experts. And what you find is you can really expose the weakness of not only the ability for the expert to communicate the information, but also to really expose the reliability of, of how they acquired their information or how they acquired their valuation. So as far as what the court considers, you, you, when you're dealing with the just and right division of the marital estate, and you've got one expert that has got their T's crossed, I's dotted, everything's reported very well. It's, it's, it's a very smooth transition versus somebody who kind of gives these loosey-goosey answers to questions, and they don't have all the documents in front of them that they can basically be cross-examined on uh, and have really a good intellectual response that, that negates or adds to whatever the expert is saying. It's very easy to knock them out. So when your burden of proof um, is clear and convincing evidence and one party is saying $1 million and the other party is saying two, the party that's saying two that is not involved in the business, doesn't understand the customer breakdown, doesn't understand uh, the diversity of the market space, the cycles of the sales cycle, uh, and all the things that come into play in business, the 
party two is kind of just coming up with a figure because that's what their client wants or thinks. And that's where you kind of punch holes in those, in, in those arguments. And it, it's, it's kind of a smoother transition uh, from the party that's actually apprised of all the information. And that, Mary, is like one of the things that is really challenging. When you have one party that's completely uninvolved in the assets or the business, it's very hard for them to get their mind around the financial aspect of the business. And so when their expert is, you know, fishing through just financial documents, but the expert's not really going into uh, the Q&A session with the entrepreneur or the business owner, uh, you know, the financial part of the business is just part of it. And the other part of it is the goodwill. The other part of it is the customer relations, how many customers there are. And if you don't have those questions answered and you don't have somebody that can just speak the human language, the English language in common sense terms, the entrepreneur shut down because obviously they're on the other side. So it's really important to think through all of those things. And I'm very particular on those experts as a result. When you have the experts in court, is the expert also somebody you use after their divorce is final to help in a division of the property? Because you were talking how difficult it is to even assess it. So how does it work after the divorce is final? No, generally speaking, we we really try to divide and conquer roles, right? So I have experts that are really good tracing experts. There, I have experts that are really good at valuation, and I have one or two that are kind of a hybrid there. And then we use financial people, or and I call them experts, but they they're not in the same category classification. I use financial uh, individuals, um, investment strategists, and whatnot for implementation post divorce, but. And that's not really to get the the assets transferred, right? We're the expert's role is to define and value. But what what our role is is once they define and value, and then the court gives the judgment or the award, or we reach a mediated settlement agreement, then what we do behind the scenes is obviously the decrees and most importantly the ancillary documents that transfer those assets. And so, you know, the experts really aren't involved in that. I would say that as far as financial uh, investment strategists and, you know, law firms and corporate attorneys and all that, when we're dealing with a lot of complexities to a case, I always reach out to the professionals and individuals, the trust attorneys, the estate attorneys, just to make sure that we have a second set of eyes um, that are really crossing the T's and dotting the I's there. Um, because a lot of the times the language and the, the decree and the ancillary documents and maybe a trust, it'll have some conflicting provisions. So it's really important in the implementation phase to be to really take your time and get that consistent. And that's why what I try to do much far before the mediation, um, and maybe not as far before the mediation, but far before the trial, is to really flesh out the language of what we're after, right? So when we have a proposed division of property, then we basically are thinking that way. And so what documents, what ancillary documents need, do we need to transfer or effectuate that, that division? Um, but in answer to your question, I don't really rely on experts to do the transfer of the property there. That's something that we do in-house. Okay, so it takes a village basically to get this all Absolutely. straightened out. Okay, cool, thanks. So, you know, as we wrap up, you guys, um, I wanted to go back to talking about Justin Wright division and- Justin, that doesn't necessarily mean a 50-50 split, which a lot of people think that it might, you know? So what factors can affect how a marital estate is divided? There's a lot of different things that could factor in there. 
Yeah. So first I want to touch on Justin Wright division in several thousand divorce cases in 15 years of practice. I don't know what that means. <laughs> so if you, um, if you, if you have an idea and you're some expert divorce attorney out there, that's great. Uh, the point being is that it's meant to be broad, just like best interest of the child is meant to be broad. Um, it's meant to allow a very wide degree of discretion for the court. So while courts generally try to make both parties whole in an equitable manner, you know, the 50-50 the, the or fair um, terms, I always get that out of clients' heads in the beginning. And the main reason is if you let me define I had a finance professor at Baylor, and he always said, if you you can charge me whatever you want for this house, if you let me define the interest rate and the term. So what, what that means is if I can define the, the, the actual tangible asset as far as valuation and I can determine payout, I can make a 50-50 look 50-50, but it can be 60-40 uh, just based on just the financial terms alone, based on the tax uh, terms alone. Um, and so- as far as the division or fairness or just and right division, uh, it's really important specifically when you're not just dealing with a house with a value or retirement account with a value, the simple estates, when you really have moving parts like businesses, entities that are spitting off income, basically a payout or buyout for let's, let's call it a ranch business or a farm business or oil and gas or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, that's where the complexity comes in. And that's where, in my opinion, the craft of the attorney comes in. It's the ability to not only get the information organized, but it's really the ability of the attorney to communicate that after they've defined it and really put the story together. The 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 stay-at-home wife or her husband that's been the stay-at-home for 10 years, 15 years that doesn't really have any information. And now all of a sudden there's this business that has all these moving parts. There's partnership interests. There's real estate. You know, you've really got to cut that up and define each piece and break it down and then get it back together in, as a whole. And then I like to keep it all down to one or two pages on an Excel spreadsheet. So you can move those pieces back and forth. And we have our spreadsheet, right? Which is kind of what we know and what we're thinking from a strategic direction. And then we have the inventory spreadsheet, right? And it doesn't mean that the numbers necessarily change. It just means that when we're looking at it from a strategic direction and a tax advantage or a valuation advantage, you know, I can move those pieces back and forth in a mediation or in a trial and, and before trial and show the clients really what that division means. Uh, but so, uh, because, you're telling, so you're telling us basically that if, if one of the, uh, the spouses cheats has no impact on something like that so is there not is that not unfair to stay at home wife that that took care of the kids for many many years and not a husband or vice versa because yeah the, steps out of the marriage and now there's no there's no benefit for us in texas no so don't hear me say that what, what i was what i was trying to clearly point out is that a just and right division is not a percentage to a t right it's a it's it can be 50 percent 55 percent but that 55 percent can look like 55 percent but it's not um, and so that's the first piece. The second piece is what moves the needle to change that. If you're thinking of 50-50 scale, which I try to get that out of people's heads, but if you're thinking that way, some of the, the factors that Mary just touched on was, okay, well, what does a court consider when they're moving one scale and tipping it to, in favor of one side versus the other? And so those are situations like, are you disabled? Do you have the ability to work? How long has it been since you've worked? Are you raising a, a disabled child? Do you have, are you raising the kids in general? 
Um, do you have work experience? Do you have a college degree? Um, do you have the ability to go out and earn, you know, as far as the earnings of the spouse, that's one thing. And let's say one spouse cheats on the other one and the other spouse has uh, a lot higher ability to earn that starts to tip the scales more balanced. And, you know, in, in a divorce setting, specifically with what I call the hot button or, or red button issues, um, the adulteries, the abuse, the cruel treatment, um, those are the very emotional um, aspects to a division of property. And they certainly provide and allow for an unequal division favoring the the victim of that situation. But there are also offsets. And that's the hardest thing to explain to clients is, yes, that person cheated or yes, that person's been abusive, but there are still assets over here that have to be divided. And you know, some people come in just like custody cases. They say, I want full custody or I want... Um, that pound of flesh in the in the uh, division of property, and it's just it's just very challenging to get there, um, you know, to a hundred percent division. Now we have had Andrea, you've been privy to the ninety ten splits, and you've seen those um, when we've come through, and those are very egregious and they're outliers. So I don't even like to brag about them, you know, if if you're going to brag in divorce, um, but but I would say that those cases were really worked up. And we had a lot of issues of fraud. Uh, we had depositions and we had somebody that was really trying to hide the money. And everyone says, well, I think they're hiding assets or they're narcissistic or whatever. But when you really dive deep into those uh, fact patterns, a lot of times the people don't even have any money to begin with. And so I don't allow them to just chase this magic carpet ride. I don't allow them to go and really work to your question. I don't really allow them to just go down and you know, beat up this adultery and spend all the client's money if there's not going to be a, a, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow there. And so, um, yes, in answer to your question, it does impact it, but you first have to identify the assets, figure out what it, whether it's community or separate property, figure out the valuation, figure out whether there's assets remaining that you can divide. How are you going to secure those? And then you go into the just and right division. So, all of the behind the scenes work here, that's really where I tell clients, that's where 90% of the soup is made. And the frustrating part for clients is they don't get to see that. They're not in your office. They don't see eight paralegals and you know seven attorneys and you know all the conversations and the support staff really creating this whole uh, mosaic, if you will. And all of these pieces to that mosaic uh, really create the big picture. And they don't see that till mediation uh, or a trial. And so all these letters all of the valuation, all the evidence comes into play. And when you're dealing with just and right division um, and you're really trying to paint that picture, that's how you do that. That's the evidence you need to get you there. And so and, and I, other states are different, right? So people moving here from other states, the, the law might have been different from the state that they're coming from. Right? So I cannot assume if I move here from California, move here from Ohio or wherever, that the same rules apply here in Texas as they are in California, for example, correct? Correct. And, and, you know, we, we still, even though, you know, we hear alimony get thrown around all the time with maintenance and they're very different. And, you know, Texas is not an alimony state, but we still borrow things from other states like alimony. Um, we, we do contractual alimony all the time in division of property to offset um, a company's value. Um, and there's there's pros and cons to all these things, right? Alimony, for example, is non-dischargeable in bankruptcy. Uh, Post-divorce maintenance has the ability to be modified. Um, and so there's, you really have to think through the division of property, um, in conjunction with, you know, what's best for the client and what, what's going to make them whole long-term. Cause it's never perfect. I've never had a case, uh, you know, we just finished one, I guess about two or three months ago 
where the 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 wife was a stay at home, the husband worked for a very prominent family here in Fort Worth, um, and was a very very high up executive level, and had all of these business interests, and they were all these closely held business interests owned by the boss of the uh, of the other spouse, and that boss had the ability to control when they were sold, when the distributions were made, and all that. So, it, you know, I, we went through a a 30 or $40 million exercise with dividing up, you know, what 20 million looks like, what 15 million looks like. And I I don't just throw these big numbers around. So people go, well, I don't have that. So I don't need this. I, I do it because it, it, it doesn't matter whether you have just a house and a retirement or you have a massive estate. It's very, very important that you define what's there and you keep the same process. I don't change process for multimillionaires to people that, you know, are just trying to get by. I don't change how we do it. We, we take the same approach and it's just as important. And oftentimes the less assets there are and the less liquidity there is to basically simplify the process, even though it's a one asset divorce case, those are the ones that drag on because neither party can qualify to finance the other one out or, or, um, you know, buy the other one out. And so those, those are much more difficult to get the horse to water, to make him drink cases. So I think that's a good spot to wrap up unless you have anything else to add about valuation or community property. Yeah, I know this is kind of not the uh, the most exciting topic in the world as far as our listeners go, but there really are a lot of complexities. And I, we're getting a lot of questions about um, specifics on community and separate property um, and how the other states tie in and you know estate planning and all that stuff. So we are going to touch on some of the drier topics, if you will, as we come, as we move forward, but they're, they're a tangible piece to the, to the whole puzzle here. Um, and, and that's, that's why I like the entrepreneur aspect of this, um, when we're, when we're dealing with these kind of, with these kind of situations. And so as we get further, uh, questions from our listeners, we'll go ahead and touch on some of those and we'll try to spice it up a little bit, but some of the financial talk is a little dry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, and I think the best thing for people to do is if they do have questions about their divorce and their property and valuation for their specific case, they should contact the Sizemore Law Firm um, if they live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And if you'd like to get in touch with um, Justin's firm, you can call 817-336-4444 or visit lawyerdfw.com. And of course, we invite you to follow the podcast. And if you have friends that are looking to get divorced or they need help with custody matters, um, certainly share this podcast with them. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Thank you for listening to In Your Best Interest with Texas divorce attorney and entrepreneur, Justin Sizemore. The content presented here is provided for information only and should not be construed as legal, tax, or financial advice. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. 